0: All right, good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15. The title to our message this morning is, What is His Name? As you're turning to Exodus 3, please remember that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Exodus chapter 3 Starting in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Generations Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we desire to know your name this morning, not um, not just intellectually, not just to, to be aware of a bare fact, Lord, but to know it experientially, in our bones, in our hearts, in our spirits. As Moses encountered you on the mount, looking at the burning bush, Lord, we pray that your spirit would encounter us now, confront us, Lord, with your name, this name that is to be remembered forever, for we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. All right, please be seated. If you look in some of your Bibles that are on your shelves at home, you'll find that uh, many of them, if not all of them, will cite uh, these particular verses that I just read. In fact, I picked up three Bibles on my shelf this week, and they all quote Exodus three fourteen through 15 in their introduction. And the reason why is because these verses here Explain and reveal God's particular, personal, special name. And this name is cited some 6,500 times in the Old Testament. It's the name Yahweh. That's how to pronounce the word L O R D when it's in small caps. This is God's covenant name, his personal name. It's the name of names. It is the name that our passage says this morning is to be remembered throughout all generations. And I would submit to you that many of our problems today happen because we forget this name. I don't mean that we forget how to spell it or we forget what it sounds like. Or rather, we have forgotten what Yahweh means. I am who I am. When we see that in the passage, it immediately strikes us as completely mysterious. But what God meant by it, it is the most magnificent name that's ever been uttered. And it's so practical because this name is the name that helps you parent your children. It helps you go to work. It helps you to forgive others who have wronged you. It helps you to face a frightening economy. It helps you to not be anxious when your car breaks down. It helps you to take the Lord's Supper with confidence. It helps you to sing psalms and hymns from the depths of your being. It helps you to face your own death. The name of Yahweh it helps you to pray and love your enemies. It helps you to look at the future and laugh. Proverbs 18.10, the name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. God did not tell Moses his name to satisfy some curiosity. He told him his name to arm him, to strengthen him, to equip him in order to face all of the opposition that he was about to face. And that's what this name will do for you. It will strengthen you so that you know that nothing can defeat you. No evil can frustrate God's plan and purpose for your life and that this name teaches you that no one can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All blessing is contained in this name. So our three points this morning are the wonder of a name, secondly, the wonder of God's name, and then thirdly, the wonder of God's unending name. So let's begin with the wonder of a name, and let's reorient ourselves. Moses is on Mount Sinai. After being 40 years in the wilderness, uh, the angel of the Lord, who we discovered already is the pre-incarnate Christ, shows up in the burning bush, and he calls Moses, Moses, and you cannot understand that this passage is the most significant passage in the whole Old Testament, meaning if you don't understand that, you won't understand the rest of the Old Testament. The Exodus was the chief, highest most spectacular redemptive event in the Old Testament. Just like in the New Testament, the incarnation was the chief, highest, most spectacular redemptive event. Just as, Christ had its, just as Christ had his beginnings in that manger in Bethlehem, so here Christ came down at Mount Sinai and clothed himself in this burning bush. So put yourself there on that mountain. The Lord tells Moses that he has come to set Israel free. That Moses is going to be the instrument of that freedom. And Moses asks him, last week we saw this in verse 11, but who am I that I should go? Moses was right, of course. He was not sufficient for the task. The Lord tells him in verse 12, but I will be with you. This 80-year-old shepherd was going to take down the most powerful army in the world, not because he was sufficient, but because God was with him. And, And now this morning, we find out who this God is. So look with me at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, this seems um, rather curious that Moses did not know uh, God's name. I say this is curious because if you look in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve and the patriarchs we're already using this personal name of God. For example, Eve called uh, God Yahweh in Genesis 4:1. Why didn't Moses know it? Does not scripture say that he was a man of faith? Hebrews 11:24. Yes, of course he was a man of faith. But consider that while in Egypt for the centuries that they were there, Israel along with Moses had been thoroughly Egyptianized, and it's not much different than what we see today. Uh, There are many truly Christian folk, born-again believers, who are largely ignorant of the God that they serve. Um, How many true Christians have you met that you would call true Christians, that attribute more power to man's freedom of choice than to God's. Sovereignty. How many times have you uh, doubted the love of God, the God who knows every hair on your head? How many times have you done that? See, ignorance of God is a disease that all Christians share. Moses had asked God what his name was because it seems his name had fallen out of the collective memory of Israel. And Moses wanted to know this name so that when he went to Israel, he might persuade them that God had really sent him. You might ask, but how could a mere name persuade Israel? What's the big deal about a name? That's part of the problem. We live in a world today where we have been taught that names uh, aren't really anything. They don't need to correspond with the nature of the thing that's named. That's actually not biblical thinking. And so we come upon our, our first principle this morning. God designed names to reveal the nature of things. God designed names to reveal the nature of things. Names were never meant to be arbitrary or capricious. Um, To name something is to uncover its nature, to reveal what that is. Tolkien understood this uh, in his writing of the Lord of the Rings. Children, uh, boys and girls, I don't know if you remember the dialogue between Treebeard and the Hobbits. Remember, Treebeard was that int, that walking tree beast and he was old he was ancient and treebeard and mary and pippin are all standing on this this hill together and treebeard is shocked that the hobbits would call that thing that they stand on a hill Here, here's the dialogue Treebeard asks them did you say what you call it hill suggests pippin Shelf, step, suggests Mary. Treebeard repeated the words thoughtfully. Hill. Yes, that was it. But it is a hasty word for a thing that has stood here ever since this part of the world was shaped. In Treebeard's mind, hill didn't correspond with this thing that was ancient. Treebeard Uh, represents the old way of thinking that names should reflect the nature of the things that they name. Dear congregation, God designed names to reveal those things that are hidden. Consider just a survey of biblical proofs for this. Think of Adam, the first man. Adam's name means dust. Yes, Adam and all of his posterity share a great dignity because we have been made in the image of God, and yet Adam's very name means dust, which means all of mankind are creatures of the dirt, which should remind us, uh, who is man, a creature of the dirt compared to almighty God? Adam's name teaches us our true nature, or Consider Eve. Eve was actually given two names. First, she was named Woman because, Genesis 2.23, she was taken out of man. But then, after the fall, Adam gave her a special name because God had promised that the seed of the serpent would come from the woman. Sorry, the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. It would come from her. Genesis 3.20, it says, then the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. This isn't calling attention to the fact that she was the first mother, the first mother that would give birth to all other people. It was calling attention that she was gonna give birth to the one that would give life to the world. Consider Seth. Adam named his son Seth because he lost Abel to Cain. The word Seth means compensation. God compensated for the loss of Cain, ensuring that this serpent crusher would come through Seth's line. Seth's name teaches us about God's plan. Consider Abraham. I don't know why Terah, who was a pagan, his father named his son Abram, which means exalted father, but we do know why God changed his name to Abraham. Genesis 17, 5, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham's name teaches us that Jesus Christ would be a blessing to all nations. Consider Moses himself. Just look back at chapter 2, verse 10. Why was Moses called Moses? Halfway through the verse. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Moses' very name uncovers the wonderful providence of God in saving him. To land the plane here, Moses asked what God's name was so that he and the children of Israel would know who God himself is. Moses understood that if he knew God's name, he would know who God is. So let's apply this first point this morning. We are in Advent. We are celebrating the first coming of the name of him who came into the world. And do you realize that his coming was announced primarily by telling us what his name is. Isaiah 9:6 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His name tells you why this coming was the most glorious event in the history of the world because no other being will ever have a name like that. Matthew 121, she will bear a name and you shall call his name Jesus. She shall bear a son, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. God named him Jesus so that you would know that by believing on his name, you would be forgiven of your sin. Or Matthew one twenty three, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God named him Emmanuel so that you would know not only have you been forgiven of your sin, but you've been given the greatest gift, God himself in Christ. Why these songs are penned, loved ones. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes our sorrows and heals our wounds and drives away our fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. There is no name so sweet on earth, no name so sweet in heaven. The name before his wondrous birth to Christ the Savior given. O Jesus, by that matchless name, your grace shall fail us never. Today is yesterday the same, you art the same forever. We love to sing around our King and hail him, blessed Jesus. For there's no word ear ever heard so dear, so sweet as Jesus. That's our first point. Names are full of wonder because God designed them to reveal things that are hidden. So let's look at the wonder of God's name, our second point, the wonder of God's name. Moses asked what God's name was. How did God respond? Please look with me at verses 14 through 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now it's important to see the parallel here between Verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, it's, I am has sent me to you. And then in verse 15, it's, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has sent me to you. Lord in caps in verse 15 is derived from the same verb, to be, that makes up I am in verse 14, meaning that. Whenever you see that word, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, some 7,000 times nearly, you should immediately think, I am who I am. In the Hebrew, Lord is expressed in four letters, uh, Y-H-W-H, and some have pronounced this Jehovah, and others have pronounced it Yahweh. Now, this Name is different than some of the other words that we use for God. So the word for God, Elohim, or the word for Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, Adonai, are not so much names of God, but they are titles of God. And these titles of God are actually applied to men in other places. In Psalm 82.1, Elohim is referred to civil rulers, In Genesis 45, eight through nine, Adonai is used of Joseph being the Lord, the master of Egypt. So those titles can be applied to men, but Yahweh, the personal and special name of God is never used of anyone else except for God himself. Yahweh alone is I am who I am. And oh the utter strangeness of this name, the otherworldliness of it how are we supposed to understand it? Well, consider at least four things that I am who I am means. first of all, it means that Yahweh is self-existent. Yahweh is self-existent uh, what's helpful to 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 understand this, this terminology is to think about how we use it all the time. So we use language like I am whenever we're speaking about ourselves, don't we? I could say, I am a man. I am an American. I am a Christian. I am Josh. Whenever we put, whatever we put after I am in reference to us is what defines us. And these definitions... Uh, are limitations that are imposed um, from outside of ourselves. But Yahweh has no limitations that come from outside of himself. He simply says, I am. He's self existent, he, he, he is limitless, He is infinite. Being is given to us from outside of ourselves, but he is being itself. This is the whole lesson of the burning bush. What do fires need to burn? They at least need fuel, don't they? They at least need fuel. Without fuel, the fire dies. But what was the fire consuming in the bush? Nothing. This fire, Yahweh, it doesn't, he doesn't need a fuel source. He needs nothing outside of himself to sustain himself. He is self-sustaining. As Van Masserick says here, he is from himself and for himself. He alone has all essence. W. Shedd says here that this is his peculiar characteristic, that he is. In a sense in which no other being is. He is self-existent and cannot but be. Yahweh must be and cannot be conceived of as non-existent. Yahweh is necessarily. That's what I am means. That's the first thing I am means. That Yahweh is self-existent. Secondly, it means that Yahweh is eternal. Yahweh is eternal. There was a time, not too long ago, that you and I were not. We became when we were conceived in our mother's womb, but Yahweh never became. He is I am, meaning he is eternal. Now, you might say, well, we're e- eternal. Well, in a sense, yeah, men and angels will, will live forever because that God made us immortal, but we are only eternal in a derivative sense. Yahweh is eternal in the most proper sense. He never had a beginning. He is eternity itself. No beginning, no ending, no succession of moments. In Yahweh, there was no before And no after, because those words describe created things that exist in time. And it breaks the very mind to think of it. Augustine, in his uh, book, Confessions, he he prayed this to this timeless I am. He says, although you were before time, it is not in time that you precede it. If this were so, you would not be before all time. You made all time. You are before all time. And the time, if such we may call it, when there was no time, was not time at all. Now, if you don't understand that, join the club. The point is, is that we have no ability. You can't even hear me outside of time. Each sentence is before. The next one comes after. God doesn't have before and after. He is I am. I am. Before Genesis 1-1, there was no before. That's the second thing I am means, that God, Yahweh, is from everlasting to everlasting. Thirdly, Yahweh is unchangeable. You and I are constantly becoming. After a long day, we say, I am tired. We were full of energy and now I am tired or I am hungry. Children and boys and girls, you can say right now, I am young. But very soon you will say, I am old. <laughs> But Yahweh is never becoming something else. He is always I am, meaning he is unchangeable. It's impossible for him to change. Things that change were something before, they are something now, and they will be something different then. Even our sanctification, we're moving from one degree of glory to another. You are not what you were when you first got saved. But if God ever becomes something other than what he is, then he cannot be I am. Stephen Charnock says here, I am means that I am the same before the creation of the world and since the creation of the world before the entrance of sin, and since the entrance of sin, before they're going into Egypt, and while they remain in Egypt. That's the third thing that I am means. It means that Yahweh is immutable. Fourthly, it means that Yahweh is covenantally gracious. Yahweh is covenantally gracious. Please look with me at verse 15. The Lord, again, for the third time, in just a short period of time, he reminds Moses that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Why is God bringing this up again In this place, he is saying that though he is the self-existent one, the one who lives in eternity, the one who can never change, he has bound himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the children of Israel, that he is their God, that, that they are his people. Now, here's the question. Why would God do this? He is the I am. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't depend upon them. They don't sustain him. In fact, at every opportunity in this book, what does Israel do? They rebel. Why would he bind himself to this people? Don't you see? The only possible answer is simply because he chose to. He chose to love them. From eternity, he chose to set his affection and mercy and pity upon them. And because he is the great I am, he can never undo that covenant love. As one theologian says here, it is more certain than certain that he will be who he is to these people. And I think that this is the most unbelievable thing about this passage. He grounds his covenant mercies in the immutability of his person. He pours the infinitely strong cement of I am over this promise to save and love and provide for Israel. That's the fourth thing that I am means. Yahweh's covenant love for his people is rooted Not in them, but in his self-existence, eternality, and immutability. That brings us then to our second principle. Consider this a summary. In the personal name of Yahweh, we find everything that we need for this life and the life to come. Dear congregation, examine yourself. Put your heart on the table in front of this text. What more do you need in life than this God right now? You might say, well, that's easy for you to say. You don't have the life of suffering that I have. You don't have the trials and tribulations that I have. Well, I'm certainly not saying that anyone who belongs to Yahweh doesn't have suffering. We most certainly will. We will will suffer great loss in this life. We will suffer the great loss of earthly comforts, the loss of friends and family, but that's just it. We will never suffer the loss of Yahweh. Search your heart. What does it long for more than anything else? What does it need more than anything else? It needs this right here. I am who I am. In the personal name of Yahweh, you have all beauty and all glory and all desire that you could ever want. That's why the psalmist says, not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. In the personal name of Yahweh, you have the highest, best, greatest good in all of existence. Psalm 138.2 says, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. What's, What's greater than health? God's name. What's greater than wealth? God's name. What's greater than the greatest friendship that you could ever have? The revelation of God's name. What will secure you on that day when you're about to pass through the valley of the shadow of death? God's name. So comfort yourself with this name. Comfort yourself. What friend do you have like Yahweh? Even your best earthly friend will one day be separated from you. Either you or they will die. But Yahweh can never die. He's self-existent. He's the one who gives All mankind, life and breath and everything else. Your earthly friends, you may have great friends on on planet Earth and praise God for that. You might have the best type of friend, the, the friend who selflessly loves you and serves you and is always concerned with you and is always careful to bless you, but they can never give you eternity, but Yahweh can. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. The great I am can translate you into that third heaven that Paul spoke about, that realm where the most powerful rocket ship could never find. The reality is, is that even your best earthly friends will let you down. Friends break their promises. Friends fail you in other ways, often simply because they are mutable they're changeable they live in circumstances that they can't foresee but Yahweh is immutable he's unchangeable nothing can cause the slightest degree or variation in him numbers 23:19 god is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind which means any promise that he's made to you he certainly will fulfill Why do do your earthly friends love you? Now, hopefully we have friends that love us unconditionally, but most often our relationships are built on some sort of mutual love, some sort of mutual understanding, some sort of mutual relationship, some sort of mutual commonality. In other words, they love you because you are lovely to them in a sort of manner. Dear believer, Yahweh does not love you because of some loveliness in you. His covenant with you is not based on you at all. It's based on I am. Nothing in you could have moved him to love you. Otherwise, he is movable and he is not I am. He loves you because he loves you. And he could never unlove you because if he unloves you, if his love for you changes, then he ceases to be I am. It's more certain than certain that he will continue to be your God and you will continue to be his child for all eternity without end. So in the personal name of Yahweh, we find everything we need for life and the life to come. That's our second point. Let's consider, thirdly, the wonder of God's unending name. Please look with me at the end of verse 15. God says, this is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, for me, especially during Advent, this verse seems a little bit like a contradiction. Every Christmas, we celebrate the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know that It says of Jesus that God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in both heaven and earth. So how can God say here at Exodus 3 that Yahweh is his name forever, that Yahweh is the name to be remembered throughout all generations, but then we find in the New Testament that Jesus has given this name above every name. How do we reconcile that? And then we arrive at our final principle, the wonder of all wonders, that Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. Now, if you know the New Testament, you know that Yahweh is never found in the New Testament. It's a Hebrew word. It's, it's not in the Greek. The word is, in the Greek is kurios, but, but it matters little the New Testament authors constantly quoted those passages from the Old Testament which contained Yahweh in them and they applied them directly to Christ. Peter at Pentecost quoted the 16th Psalm and he applied it to Jesus. Acts chapter two, verse 25, for David says concerning him, that's Christ, I saw the Lord. the word is Yahweh in Psalm 16:8. "I saw Yahweh always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken." In Peter's very first sermon, he preached that Jesus is Yahweh. Hebrews 2:10 quotes the hundred and second psalm, also applying it to Jesus. We read in Hebrews 2:10, "You, Lord. Yahweh, in Psalm one hundred two twenty five. you, Yahweh, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. By the way, if you have Jehovah's Witness friends, they have not gotten this out of the New World Translation that they make a big deal out of the word Jehovah being the name of God, and they deny that Jesus is. Even in their New World Translation, they have not scrubbed this. Show them it. No, no, Jesus is called Yahweh, Jehovah. Jesus himself taught that he is Yahweh. In John eight fifty eight. truly, truly, he said this to the Jews. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because they knew that this uh, peculiar and personal name of God only belonged to God and, and, and a man who did that is worthy of death. Jesus claimed to be him. Dear congregation, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who came down and put on flesh. The great I am is the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. A Christian is a person who believes that Jesus is the great I Am. Here's our exhortation this morning as we conclude our name, our time together. Remember the name. Remember the name. Verse. 15 says, thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. How do we obey this? How do we remember the name to the glory and honor of God? There was a study published in Forbes magazine last year, and it found out that our minds... They wander about 47% of the time. I was reading this and I got instantly depressed because I realized that only 47% of what I was going to say was going to be retained this morning. Our minds wander 47% of the time and they almost always wander to negative thought. Reclaim your mind. If your mind is going to wander anyway, then when it wanders this week, take it captive and force it to remember, I am who I am. Force it to remember that you are defined and you are limited by forces outside of you, but Yahweh is limitless. So when you're tired this week, when you're hungry this week, when you're grumpy this week, say, God, thank you that the I am who I am is not limited by anything. Remember this week that you became, you came into existence. But Yahweh is the one who inhabits eternity. Think about that this week. Remember that in in God's economy, there's no such thing as before or after. Let Let your mind just explode when you're thinking about that prayer by Augustine. Remember this week that you are constantly becoming, or if you're on the other side of the hill, you're constantly unbecoming but Yahweh is never changing. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember this week that you are in covenant with this Yahweh. And that, that covenant doesn't depend on how lovely or faithful or holy you are. He is the God of Abraham and he is your God, not because you attracted him to yourself if you attracted Yahweh to you then he's not Yahweh because he was unattracted to you and then he became attracted to you that's him becoming he is I am he is your god because he chose to love you as long as he's been god his decree has been that you are my son you are my daughter and if he chose to love you he cannot unlove you, he must forever love you because he is I am. And finally, remember, remember this week that this Yahweh is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that this I am has promised you all things in himself. That's what all of the I am statements are about. I am the bread of life, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Do you want to feel satisfied this week? Do you want to not hunger and not thirst? Then remember, I am the bread of life. Remember, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you're in darkness this week. Remember, I am the light of the world. Lift up your gaze to the I am the light. Remember this week, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When you're discouraged and your sins are piling up like a mountain, remember that the good shepherd, the I am, has already paid for those sins. Remember I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Remember that when you close your eyes for the last time here, you will wake up and you will see the I am, the great resurrection. Remember this name. Fix your mind upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that you revealed yourself to Moses, not just in the fiery bush, but in the name, I am who I am. Father, help us to remember this name by the power of your spirit this week. For we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.